1: When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out of pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds and Gary Lake beat Ron DeSantis in a CPAC straw poll to be Trump's running mate. I mean, whatever that means. We have a fascinating show for you today. Congressman Jim Hines explains to us why Washington, D.C. should make laws for itself. Then we have USAID's Samantha Power talking to us about the war in Ukraine as it enters year two, and a post-earthquake Turkey. But first we have The Guardian's political investigations reporter, Hugo Lowell. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Hugo Lowell.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So, uh, CPAC, discuss.
3: It was the Trump show, for real, I think. (laughs) The first few days when Trump wasn't there, it was really low key. And the biggest draw was Steve Bannon. And the last day was Trump. And when Trump was there, it was just Trump.
1: I wasn't at the CPAC, which, you know, because. uh, But what I noticed was that it seemed more sparsely attended than usual. Do you think that's right?
3: Yeah, look, I think the first uh, few days when Trump wasn't there, it was very sparsely attended, even for some of the keynote speeches. For you know, people who you think might draw big crowds in MAGA world, people like Matt Gates, people like Lee Stefanik, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, the auditorium was maybe at best forty percent full. And I was watching Steve Bannon do his show live just outside the conference center. There were people in the crowd talking to themselves, being like, "Oh, you know, Matt Gates is on now. Do you want to go see Matt Gates?" And they'd be like, "Now nah, why would we want to go see Matt Gates?" The real show is here, and so I think that kind of encapsulates how you know even the MAGA members of Congress to the ultra MAGA you know Trump supporters to them it's not really as interesting as someone like Steve Bannon who they see as the real kind of MAGA OG celebrity.
1: You're blowing my brain here for a minute. You're saying that Steve Bannon is more central to MAGA world now than Mac Aides.
3: Yeah, I mean the two chants that you heard the most during CPAC was. Trump, 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 or Let's Take Down the CCP. And Let's Take Down the <laughs> CCP is the kind of jingle slash music that Bannon plays in the intro and outro to his show. I think he really is, you know, he, he has taken the MAGA brand further right than even in 2016 and through the administration. And I think the members of Congress, you know, they were talking about, like, policy and how like Biden was bad. And, you know, the CPAC crowd, I think, you know, gives appreciation for that. And you would hear like the smattering of applause. But what they really were there for was Trump and anything beyond that, if it wasn't bad and was a bit of a sideshow.
1: What about Don Jr.? I mean, the, what I read was that Don Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a huge small dollar raiser, that all three of them could barely put together crowds.
3: Yeah, their speeches, you know, they're roughly around 20 minutes, to 30 minutes long. And they could not fill the auditorium. The only person outside Trump who was able to fill the auditorium really was Bannon. And he probably got to, I want to say, about 60 percent. And I think it's just the reflection of it's Trump or nothing. I don't know how how else to describe it. It's like it's become more Trumpy than any other CPAC before. And I don't know if this is a reaction to kind of his ultra loyal supporters being like, you know, we have to show that we're still behind Trump and, you know, all this discussion about DeSantis is is garbage and we we need to, you know, show our enthusiasm more. Or if it is just that this particular crowd that came to this particular CPAC was particularly Trumpy. But either way, you know, none of the other members of Congress, as as Trump allied as they were, were able to generate the sort of enthusiasm and crowds that you might otherwise expect. It was really notable.
1: It's so interesting to me because, I mean, how much of this do you think is because of the allegations surrounding Matt Lab? the Herschel Walker staffer who is suing Matt Lab for $8.7 million? And how much of this do you think is just because MAGA world is split or Trump world is
4: split?
3: I think it's a bit of both. I think initially you know, in the first few days when it really was empty, because it really was empty. Like, it was, it was surprising the, the, the extent to which people were not there. Uh, and I think originally people were like, oh, you know, this is really because of Match and, you know, people don't want to be associated with CPAC, especially the vendors and, you know, even the far-right kind of media outlets, you know, don't want to be associated with CPAC. You know, Fox was not there this year. The headline media sponsor was Newsmax. It's
1: kind of sad.
3: And Rav and RSBN What's Rav? Real America's Voice, Oy. which hosts Bannon's show, and then RSBN Right Side Broadcasting News.
1: Yes, which I've watched before.
3: Like, commiserations.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Makes Fox look like, uh, yeah, look like the BBC.
3: <laughs> no, that's basically right. And I think by the time that Trump got to the stage, though, I think it had filled out and I wonder if people, you know, people clearly came for Trump on that final day on Saturday as well. So maybe they put their reservations about Matchslap aside and they were like, "We want to see Trump speak." Or it was not exactly clear. Is is the is the answer for now? Even among the at- attendees, there was an acknowledgement that yes, you know, the the allegations around Matchslap are kind of not great. And, you know, we don't want to be associated with that.
1: So I listened to that speech and I thought it seemed pretty bad, but it seems like people, some people who are like more even Trump versed than me were even more horrified, like that some of the lines he said were like the furthest he's ever gone. Do you think that's true? And do you agree with that? And what do you think?
3: So I have three takeaways from the speech. The first was it was really energetic at the start, you know, when he was talking about the Department of Justice and how DOJ is coming after him and how Jack Smith is an animal, you know, that really fired him up you could see that personally kind of animated him in a way that the policy stuff he was talking about really didn't
1: yeah, you know, he can talk
3: as much as he, li- <laughs> right. But, you know, he, but like, you know, this is kind of emblematic of kind of what gets him going and what right. really puts kind of fire in his, in his campaign.
1: And it makes sense because remember in 2020, they decided not to have a platform.
3: Right. And, you know, when he's talking about the policy and like, Oh, you know, I want to have, you know, a baby boom. And, you know, I want to, you know, I want to, send MS-13 back to Mexico. All of the policy points, to me, were things he'd said before. You know, things like ending the Department of Education. You know, he has said all of this before.
1: Baby boom. I have never heard him talk about a baby boom. That's straight out of Turkey. I mean, that's real authoritarian stuff right there, right? That's ethno-nationalism. I mean, right. that I do think is new.
3: No, no, fair enough. But I think if you if you take the speech as a whole, a lot of the content, you know, he had said elsewhere whether it wasn't the gaggle that he did previously or kind of previous appearances or previous speeches, the content as a whole was not new. The thing that really animated him was the DOJ stuff. And when he was complaining about personal grievances, not only did that animate him, but because he was so energized by that, it also energized the crowd.
5: Mm -hmm. And
3: I think if you speak, you know, I spoke to his advisors yesterday night and this morning, they were like, you know, that clearly resonated. And that's the kind of thing we're actually going to message going forward because it does boost both his supporters as well as him himself.
1: So you didn't see authoritarian leaning there or you just saw the standard Trumpy authoritarianism?
3: I thought it was the standard Trumpy authoritarianism. I mean, not to discount the fact that I think there were you know authoritarian undertones throughout the speech. Right. But this is not particularly new for Trump. and. I kind of expect this from Trump now. You know, if if he didn't have authoritarian undertones, I'd be like, whoa. You know, yeah, it would be a what is going on? Right. <laughs> and this is this is like so, dangerous territory. Something's wrong.
1: So you think this sort of I am your retribution, there'll be more of that going forward.
3: Yeah. And look, I mean, look, you, you, you speak to the campaign that like this is what worked in 2016. We talk so much about how, you know, he is not the same person as he was in 2016. The country is not in the same place as 2016. Having been a president, who now comes with that baggage, so he can't be the underdog that he was, you know, two cycles ago. But he wants to play that playbook, and he's going to do it regardless of whatever anyone tells him. And that was on display. I think, you know, it was a very bleak speech. It was how Biden's America was supposedly destroying the country. How, you know, you you couldn't, you didn't have any money to buy groceries, or like, you know, everyone's. Incomes have been set back, and you know MS. Th- he was back about MS. Thirteen. I mean, we hadn't had that for a while. Like he's back about MS. Thirteen, and it was really dark. And then he kind of portrays himself. But I'm your savior.
1: He does always have really dark speech. I mean, remember his his inauguration speech. His
3: inauguration, right? But it was right out of that.
1: Yeah, W was like, this was so- that was some weird shit.
3: It was straight out of the inauguration speech. You know, Ross Worthington had a role in writing the speech, but so did, you know, Stephen Miller. And so did Jason Miller, you know, these two guys who are back on the campaign pretty much. So I think more of that to come and more attacks on the Department of Justice because he has clearly found that that is a message that lands with the base. And he's been struggling to find that a little bit. And I think he actually found that overseas back.
1: Let's just game this out for a minute. Trump continues doing this I mean, he won the straw poll, Fox News, and the donors all want DeSantis, right? So they have their guy. So you think that it doesn't matter and Trump will just keep running?
3: Yeah. And I think if you, I mean, from the campaign's perspective, they look at CPAC and they think of it as a reset. Right. They see this as, you know, CPAC is a good representation of the right wing element of the Republican base, right? And they're like, well, what did the base want? The base wanted Trump. You know, Nikki Haley gave a speech. And while Nikki Haley was taking photos with her supporters, all the other attendees, you know, came around and, and circled her and were shouting, Trump, Trump, Trump. And Nikki Haley couldn't get a pass. Right. Like, this was a repudiation of, of the anti-Trump sentiment. And the campaign looked at that and thought, you know, this is exactly the kind of thing we need more of. And CPAC reaffirms our belief that the base actually wants Trump. And even if, you know, the Washington kind of lobbyists and the establishment, as, as they like to see it, think they want DeSantis, the campaign's like, well, it doesn't matter because what does the base want? The base wants Trump.
1: Right. What other things were stand out for you that you saw? And then I'll tell you what I found horrifying. <laughs> <sighs>
3: I keep coming back to Bannon because you know Bannon's not been really a topic of discussion at all since January 6th, really, and his, his comments about how it's going to be a wild day. Right? It was very interesting to see how much the base was kind of in tune with Bannon. They loved his speech. I mean, short of Trump, the next most frenzied speech where the crowd really went wild was was for Bannon, and he did fill that oratory.
1: Are you surprised that Don Jr. has sort of, I mean, he used to be so beloved by that crowd.
3: And now they just don't really seem to care. No, they didn't seem to care. Yeah. It was a shift.
1: Isn't that strange to you?
3: I don't know if, it, if it's so strange. I think it's been a shift, I think, but it's, I think it's a wider shift. And, you know, I keep coming back to the same point. I don't want to like labor it. But the real takeaway from this weekend was the base kind of fell back in line behind Trump. And they were like, look, you know, there are all these other MAGA, you know, personalities, whether it's MTG or Matt Gates or Bobert or even Don Jr. But the sense I got was they saw their president under siege and they came out to support him. And that was the mentality.
1: So if that is true, then indictments will only help him.
3: Yeah. And, you know, he said in the in the in the gaggle with reporters before he did a speech you know, he was asked by Newsmax's James Risen, you know, would you continue to run if you're indicted? And Trump very quickly said yes. And even though he didn't appreciate the question, you know, he was very confident in saying that. And, you know, we had always expected that, right? It was, it was not like Trump was going to be like, oh, you indicted me. You got me. That's right. You know, the campaign was just a ruse. I'm going to stop running. Right. He- clearly saw the reception that he got, and especially when he was mentioning Jack Smith and the, the criminal investigations into the multiple criminal investigations into him and how the crowd came to his defense. And he knows that if he is indicted, it will only like increase his support amongst the base. And it would probably lead to to, I think, other candidates being unable to match the kind of frenzy. That would come with the surface of Trump being like, I'm an indicted presidential candidate and Democrats are just trying to take me down.
1: I think that's probably true. Now, here's my question for you, then. Explain this to me. So the base came out for Trump. But I mean, like this was only the fourth media event he's done since he declared, right? You don't think this sort of poor showing at CPAC is proof. And again, I don't either. But I want to know what you think is proof that Trumpism is on its way out.
3: I don't think Trumpism is on its way out at all. I think going into CPAC, there was a lot of doubt as to whether Trump was on his way out. Now, coming out of it on the other end of it, looking back into you know Trump's speech, I think the base is more behind Trump than they ever have been in the you know last few months since he's announced his candidacy. As for Trumpism, it's never really been about the policies, really. You know it's, it's right. been it's been about the characters and about Trump in particular. And so if Trump is not down, then I don't see Trumpism as being down. Because you can't, to me at least, you can't really have one without the other. Otherwise, you just get, you know, right-wing authoritarianism. That's kind of how I see DeSantis.
1: Right. Do you think it was a mistake of DeSantis not to go at all? If you think about, like, what Trump would have done in that situation, he would have gone.
3: It's a really interesting question. And I thought about this a lot over the weekend. And I think ultimately what DeSantis did was probably quite strategic. It was a very MAGA lineup. It was very Trumpy. If you think about the the speakers who were there, you know, Tom Fenton was there, for instance, right? They were all real, really big kind of Trump supporters. And given how the crowd turned out, it was a very Trumpy crowd. And I think if DeSantis had gone, not only he would he have lost the straw poll, but he would have suffered the ignominy of losing a straw poll and and also being there and maybe also booed. And so, you know, if you're not there, you're like, oh, well, yeah, I wasn't there. So who cares if I lost the straw poll, as unscientific as it is. And so I think it was probably a a pretty well calculated decision for him not to have gone.
1: Don't you think that's the problem with all of these candidates? Is like you can pretend to ignore Trumpism or Trump. You can pretend to ignore Trump, but ultimately you need that base if you want to win the nomination.
3: Yeah. And, and that's what Trump is counting on. And I think that's why Trump came out of that speech and his advisors came out of that speech, you know, really buoyed by the reception that he got, because everyone knows this, including Haley and Pompeo and DeSantis. They do need, you know, at least part of that base because how are you going to win the nomination without it? It's like there, there is an underlying, you know, 30%. Right, that is very you know Trump focused and Trump heavy. I just didn't think it made any difference if DeSantis had done something else or gone, and like he was always going to lose that straw poll. He's always not going to be the same as Trump.
1: But it does seem like these candidates are sort of ignoring Trump or trying to run parallel to him. And again, I'm no fan of DeSantis. I'm more just talking about the math here. The only way you possibly defeat someone like Trump is by running against him and not around him.
3: Yeah. You you know, if you're going to go for the king, you know. You gotta, you gotta knock him over. Right. Like, there's no point just kind of hurting him. You really have to kind of take him out. And it's not clear that any other candidate, DeSantis or otherwise, has figured out what that potent knockout blow is going to be. It certainly hasn't been evident based on what Haley was saying in her speech. She had some interesting points. You know, she talked about foreign policy and how, you know, when she was UN ambassador, you know, she started um, taking away, you know, aid to, to countries that you know were, quote, unquote, kind of harming the United States, and that got a good reception. But, you know, anytime she made any sort of implicit suggestion to Trump, you know, the crowd was not having it. And I think all of these candidates have this problem of trying to figure out how do they take out Trump in one fell swoop that actually really does take him out. And I'm not sure that there is an answer to that.
1: Hugo Loll, thank you so much. I hope you will come back. Thanks. Congressman Jim Hines represents Connecticut's 4th District. Welcome to Fast Politics, Representative Jim Hines.
7: Thanks for having me, Molly.
1: First, let's talk about, I feel like it's the breaking news that wasn't. The Wall Street Journal lab leak piece.
7: Sure. Let's talk about that. Let's talk briefly, please. Briefly about (laughs) balloons, if you want to talk (laughs) about it. I've spent the last three weeks talking about balloons. Um, And then something tells me you might want to talk a little politics, which I'm happy to do as well. Perfect. But yeah, sure. Let's start with the lab leak. I'll tell you what. That's a story where there is a lot less than meets the eye. Right. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you this. It's pretty hard to figure out the source of a pandemic with great precision When you have all the facts, when you can actually interview people and, you know, take soil samples and whatever it is that, you know, people at the CDC do, we're, of course, struggling with the fact that we're being obfuscated from doing that by, by the Chinese government. And so I say all that just to say, look, there's probably always going to be some uncertainty here. So anybody who says they know exactly what happened, they are not telling you the truth. What has happened, and the reason this is in the press right now is that one of 17 elements of the intelligence community, specifically the Department of Energy moved away from thinking it was a lab leak to thinking that it might have been a lab leak. And by the way, they think it might have been a lab leak with a low degree of confidence. So that's why I tell you that this is really a story where there's a lot less than meets the eye. Dissatisfyingly, we may never actually know the answer. And like everything else, it's been politicized, like, you know, the Biden administration is hiding things. And why aren't they being tougher on China? But really, it's a story where there's just a lot less than meets the eye.
1: In my mind, the interesting thing about the lab leak versus the wet market theory is that isn't the answer like, yes, yes, make wet markets more secure and prevent this kind of thing from happening again. And also, yes, make labs more secure and prevent this kind of thing. Like, I don't understand how this changes the calculus of anything.
7: Well, exactly. Exactly. I was actually just talking to somebody about this yesterday. Here's where I sit up and say, holy smokes. I sit up and say, holy smokes, if you can say that this is a virus that was created by somebody or altered with a specific aim of killing lots of people. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's a very bad idea, not least of which is you can't control who a virus kills. But that's when I sit up and say, holy smokes. You know, the truth is that lab leaks happen all the time. Is it possible that this was a lab leak? Absolutely. Would we change our approach to the Chinese, other than to say, hey, you guys probably should be a little stricter around your labs. I mean, I guess we could get a lot of political hay about saying, look how bad they are. But yeah, fundamentally this doesn't radically change regardless of what the final determination may or may not be. And look, by the way, you could even have a you know a case in between. What if you had a virus that the Wuhan Center for Coronavirus, whatever it's called, found in the wild, brought into the lab, and then it leaked? Who knows? And and sadly, because of the obfuscation of the Chinese government, we may never know for sure.
1: I mean, the sort of gotcha here from the right is that somehow the that somehow the media was trying to mislead them, and there's like a lot of supposition between low confidence of a lab of an accidental lab leak to this was part, you know, like I there you can sort of see the wheels turning. I mean, I've watched a lot of conservative television lately, including CPAC. So I know that the, the move after that is this was Anthony Fauci's lie.
7: Right. So this story is getting a lot of airtime because it wins both the platinum and the gold medal of right wing anger. Right. The platinum award goes to the ability to paint the Chinese as ineluctably evil. They were irresponsible. They've covered it up. That's just right wing. Oscar territory. The other thing it allows them to do, and here's the gold medal in the right wing media sweepstakes, is to criticize the U.S. government, even though there's no evidence whatsoever that the U.S. government should be um, criticized. You know, they can just say, "Oh well, you know, two years ago this bureaucrat said that, and now they're saying, you know, now the Department of Energy is saying something different." And in some ways, that's what makes me most nervous because I hear this 24/7, which is ever since Donald Trump decided that because federal bureaucrats are in the business Business, they're not always successful in this, but because they're in the business of trying to use evidence based methods to keep our food supply safe, to keep our society a rule of law society, truth is a toxin to that way of thinking. And therefore, this whole deep state theory grows up. And anytime they have an opportunity, even if there's not a shred of evidence to make the claim that the government is hiding something or incompetent or Fauci is in league with George Soros, that's just, you know patent it for them.
1: Yes. And so speaking of China, the whole idea here is the idea on the conservative side that somehow Democrats like China better than Russia. as we both know, Republicans have done a lot of bonding with Russia. They like it and various autocrats and now were in this involved in this Ukraine. So there are certainly a lot of the sort of far- right fringe that loves Russia and they sort of they sort of are trying to imply the Democrats like China. That's going to move us to our next question about the balloon. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize in advance for the <laughs> balloons. The idea here, conservatives were furious that the balloon, that that Biden had not shot down the balloon sooner, even though it does seem that he was advised not to shoot down the balloon sooner. Just quickly, let's do the balloons for five minutes. Also, isn't it interesting that nobody, the balloons have completely disappeared now from the consciousness?
7: <laughs> Uh, let's talk balloons, but but let's spend 45 seconds on what you just said, because it's really important. I, I, I think you're right. I, I do think that in some right wing circles, there is this notion that, you know, the Democrats somehow like China better than they like Russia. And look, this goes back to Donald Trump, right, who, you know, loved Vladimir Putin, right, stood there with Vladimir Putin and said, I don't believe my own intelligence community. I believe you standing there in Reykjavik. Right. And, you know, there's all sorts of background reasons why the right wing likes Russia. Right. You know, Vladimir Putin is bl- brutal on the LGBT population, you know, if you're Donald Trump and and you you have the power to make your security services hurl your opponents from seven story windows, as seems to happen an awful lot in Russia, if you're Donald Trump sitting in Mar-a-Lago, man, you wish you could do that. Right. But I mean, my God, look at the history here. Right. You know, who did the opening to China? It was Richard Nixon, Republican president. Who did the sort of opening to Gorbachev? You know, it was Ronald Reagan. Uh, You know, so my point is that the notion that we like one country more than the other is just sort of an absurd notion that reflects their own Trumpian views of the world, but onto balloons. <laughs> great, on to balloons.
1: Yes, more importantly, onto balloons. Well, equally important, because the other thing I think that's really important that we talk about is this idea: we really are in a situation as a country where we want neither war with Russia nor China.
7: Yeah, that's right, and and for good reason, right? I mean, these are nuclear armed powers, right? Um, we want to go to great lengths to avoid war, but again, we need we need to just have the very very basic smarts here, right? Russia is a country that does not matter to us a lot economically, right? It's very uncomfortable when they stop sending their oil to Germany.
1: Right. But it's very tiny. Its economy is smaller than California.
7: Exactly. Well, smaller than California. So and and by the way, they are I think of them as almost sort of vandals, right? You know, they just sort of go th- they just do things in the world to destabilize democracies and stuff. The Chinese, look, there's all kinds of reasons to be angry at the Chinese. Their human rights record, the way they treat the Muslims in their western provinces, the way they steal our IP. I mean, I could go on all day. There's all kinds of reasons to be angry at the Chinese as well, not least of which is their perhaps interest in invading Taiwan, but They're different, right? They own a trillion dollars of United States treasury bonds. Right, that's a problem. There's something like six or $700 billion. They're one of our largest trading partners. So you just need to think about them a little bit differently.
1: (laughs) Right, exactly. It's not the same. The two things are not comparable. But just the balloons quickly. I mean, these are like 11 miles up, these balloons, right? Yeah. The idea here on the conservative side was that somehow these balloons going over Montana we're spying in a way that Chinese satellites were not
7: discuss. There's reasons why you might want balloons. Why? A fancy satellite can cost you a billion dollars, right? A balloon costs you almost nothing. So, you know, uh, if you have a strategy that says we're going to float balloons over Taiwan to see what's going on, that balloon's going to get shot down in one day, but you know what? It doesn't cost us much. There's reasons, right? Satellites also move pretty fast. Balloons move pretty slow. So if you really want to get a good look at something. So there's there's a logic why you might want to have a balloon. The first balloon was absolutely a Chinese spy balloon. Everybody's angry, or at least the Republicans are angry at Biden for not shooting it down, to which I would say two things. As we watched that balloon drift over the United States, boy, did we learn a lot about that balloon that we wouldn't have learned if we'd blown it out of the sky over the Pacific. Number two, they say, oh, but lots of secrets got exposed. Folks, under the Open Skies Treaty, you can look it up on Wikipedia, under the Open Skies Treaty, Russian military aircraft overfly our missile fields with some regularity. And by the way, we do that with them, too. And the idea is that we get a look at what they're doing to make sure they're abiding by their agreements. So it turns out we're really, really good when we know that a Russian aircraft is coming or in particular a Russian aircraft or a Chinese balloon, we're really good at closing the doors and hiding the stuff that we don't want to see. So I don't think a lot of good stuff was lost to that balloon. And we got a chance to get a really good look at how it behaves, what it's made of, what its attributes are. So I think the president did the right thing. You know, his his military commanders advised him not to shoot it down because of the risk to people on the ground. And again, back to the Republicans, if the president had shot it down over Montana, they would be blowing him up for ignoring the advice of his military commander. So
1: exactly. So I want to know, we were talking about the Chinese balloons, talking about China, talking about how do you work in the new McCarthy Congress? Let's go.
7: Well, so in my own little world of the intelligence committee, we're working pretty well. My Republican chairman, Mike Turner, is a serious national security guy. I I see him making a real effort to be bipartisan. He did not like the way the intelligence committee was in the last couple of years when it got so politicized. So he's making a good effort. Bigger picture, Republicans aren't going to really pass anything, certainly not going to pass anything that became law. And I want you and everybody else to look at what they're doing and think what we did, two years, right? We control the place, two years. We capped drug prices, insulin, $35. We made the biggest investment in our infrastructure since the Eisenhower era. We made the biggest investment in addressing climate change Ever. You know, we did a bipartisan gun safety thing. I could go on. I could talk for the next 10 minutes about the things that we did that will, over time, make life better for the American people. And you know what we've seen out of a Republican Congress? They kicked Ilhan Omar off the Foreign Foreign Affairs Committee. Yesterday, we got this weird plan to reduce inflation by making the president determine how inflationary an executive order is. It's just bananas, right? And because I have a fundamental faith in the intelligence of the American people, at the end of two years under McCarthy, they're going to say, oh, my God, what did you guys do? You focused on Hunter Biden's laptop. You focused on drag story hours at library. Democrats caught Cut the price of our prescription drugs. Man, let me run in 2024 with that as the contrast.
1: Biden has said this much. It seems like the Republican Congress is very much helping the Democrats.
7: Yeah, again, there are serious issues out there. I hear them every single day in Fairfield County, Connecticut. Forget about rural Mississippi. Serious issues. Economic anxiety. Drug prices are too high. The rent is too high. If the Republicans spend the next two years fighting culture war battles about drag story hour at some library in Orlando, they're going to get dusted in 2024.
1: Right. Exactly. How are you about this D.C. Council Joe Biden thing? Because that seems like there's a a call for D.C. statehood. Can you explain it to our listeners and just where you come down on it?
7: Yeah. Yeah. So the explanation is pretty straightforward. The city of Washington as a federal city doesn't really control its own destiny. And what I mean right. by that is that Congress can override the decisions that the mayor and the city council of Washington make. That's just the law. I don't think it should be the law because I happen to believe in democracy and that people should govern themselves. Crazy idea, I know. <laughs> but um, that's the fact. And so And when two bills came before the House three weeks ago to override two different laws that the city council in due order were, you know, made for the city of Washington, I voted no on overriding them. I didn't even think too, too hard about what those laws were because my fundamental belief is that the people of Washington should determine the laws that they live under and that the representative from Connecticut's fourth district shouldn't override their will. (laughs) Again, call me crazy, but I believe in self-determination and democracy. Now, the president has made a different choice. (laughs) You know, he apparently is going to let this go through. I'm not going to try to explain to you why he is doing that. But I am puzzled because he supports D.C. statehood, which presumably means he supports the people of the city of uh, the District of Columbia controlling their own destiny. And that's not what's about to happen if he vetoes this thing. So I'm trying to be consistent. Again, I I can't imagine a case in which I would seek to override a law that was democratically passed by the city of Washington. But the president obviously has a different view.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. Tell me what's on your radar for now, what's coming up.
7: Yeah. You know, the big thing on my radar is not something that it's going to make a lot of headlines, but we've got a lot of work to do to make sure that the incredible stuff that we passed in the last Congress, and I'm talking about the, you know, immense amounts of infrastructure investment that is going to, you know, rebuild our bridges and provide broadband to people who don't have it today. Uh, I'm talking about the chip semiconductor bill, which is oh, supposedly yes. going to move <laughs> we- a lot of the you know <laughs> semiconductor business back to our shores. We have a lot of work to do to make sure that that those resources get deployed intelligently, without fraud, without waste, and that they get deployed quickly, right? Because these problems are not problems five years from now. They're problems today. So that's not sexy stuff. That sort of falls into the category of oversight and implementation. But if we're going to turn a bunch of headlines into real benefit for the people that I represent, it's going to be because we really push to get that investment made intelligently and quickly.
1: I love CHIPS and we have had many, many, poor Jesse, we've had many, many interviews about the CHIPS Act, including Gina Raimondo. It's really an important issue. The CHIPS Act, there is an environmental rule in the CHIPS Act that there's been some encouragement that the administration should sort of write a write around for. Are you going to push them to To follow that Um, environmental, the more standard environmental laws that we have.
7: Yeah. Yeah. So let me answer that. Not with chips, because with chips, we're building factories. OK. And when you're building factories. You're talking about a lot of local zoning, a lot of this and that. I will tell you that we need to do this quickly. Right. It's not good enough to have fixed this problem 20 years from now. But let me redirect your question a little bit around the infrastructure. Right. Because the infrastructure is not a couple of factories. The infrastructure is rebuilding our electrical, our national electrical transmissions, system. And, and, and here's why that's an interesting topic, more interesting than it sounds on the surface, right? You know, we are doing advanced battery technology. We're trying to transition to electric cars. You know, we're building out charging stations. In order for all of that stuff to work, we need to rebuild our electrical transmission system. Now, these are the wires. You see these in you know, certain places out west and everywhere. You see them on the horizon. Massive towers carrying power, carrying wind power from Texas to, you know, wherever it goes. And we need to rebuild that. And the problem is that if we move at the same pace that we typically move, we'll rebuild it 30 years from now, which is not fast enough to address the carbon problem in our atmosphere. So the answer to your question at the end of that long speech is, yes, we absolutely need to do permitting reform that balances the need to not do stupid things environmentally with the absolute imperative that we rebuild our energy system in as rapid a Pace as possible so that we don't end up with a planet that is uninhabitable so i do support permitting reform i know the president supports permitting reform that's not to say irresponsible permitting reform but if we're going to change the way we fill our atmosphere with carbon quickly it's because we're going to move a lot more rapidly on the projects that we need to do to, to actually do that solve that problem
1: jim himes thank you so much for joining us
7: thank you molly always fun to talk
1: Samantha Power is the administrator of USAID. Welcome to Fast Politics, Samantha Power. Great to be here. We have so much to talk about. First, I wanted to talk to you about what is the sort of most recent thing that you guys have been working on, which is the situation in Ukraine. Can you talk to us a little bit about, it's a year and that's been a very important
4: moment for a lot
1: of reasons, and including in the refugee crisis.
4: Just stepping back, it's a year since Putin gratuitously decided to inflict brutality and try to take over a sovereign member of the United Nations, and a year in which President Biden uh, rallied the democracies of the world, but not only the democracies of the world, more than 140 countries at the UN to condemn the invasion multiple times now, which I know from having been a, a UN ambassador is not easy because people's interests fade the intimidation and pressure that the Russian Federation uh, places on countries not to vote to do something that might to the outsider seem kind of symbolic, which is vote against Russia is pretty hard for small countries to withstand, particularly those who are in vulnerable parts of the world. So the coalition is held really strong as as President Biden often talks about, Putin went in thinking he would take Ukraine in a matter of days and also thought he would weaken. NATO and and divide the world, And, and it's really been quite the contrary, basically, just about everything that Putin thought would happen has not happened, and its opposite has happened. In terms of USAID, which is the part that I get to work on every day, and I feel just really fortunate to be in this job at this time, we are touching a lot of aspects of the war and in a way that a lot of Americans probably aren't that aware of.
1: Can you back up for a second and explain, because I don't know that everybody knows what USAID is.
4: So USAID is the world's premier development and humanitarian agency, and we basically do everything from respond to humanitarian emergencies, sending disaster assistance response teams like we just did in response to the earthquake in Syria and Turkey, figuring out in a sense where we spend taxpayer resources, which humanitarian organizations we give them those resources to feeding people, providing medical care, uh, providing, you know, mental health services uh, to women who've suffered sexual violence, you name it. So that's all in the emergency space. And then in the so-called development space, we're doing everything from vaccinating the world, as we did over the course of the last couple of years, the developing countries, I should say, particularly, to investing in food security to make sure that farmers actually have access to seeds that are more drought and heat resistant, given what's the climate change that is walloping so many countries, period, or so many communities, period, but especially those living on the margins are the the hardest hit, as is so often the case. And then we do democracy support, you know, helping countries build independent media sectors. In Ukraine, well before this invasion, we helped the country build up its anti-corruption institutions, which, of course, we're not working flawlessly, but nonetheless, are are part of what President Zelensky's been using to crack down on corruption allegations, even during the war. We've helped the Ukrainians, again, pre-war, pre-this war, build something called the Ministry of Digital Transformation. They have some of the best cybersecurity in the world. That's USAID investments there. And now that the war has started, just to pivot to that, when Putin tries to take out critical energy infrastructure It is USAID more than any other actor and more than any other country that is swooping in to provide everything from generators to boilers to replacement pipes to additional engineering support uh, to rotating power plants or mobile power plants. Um, And so we've dedicated about $400 billion to so-called winterization efforts, namely, as, as Putin tried to weaponize winter, and in a sense freeze people into wanting to turn over territory or or end the war we try to offset that tactic and keep people warm and we're heading towards spring here we're not there yet it's still uh, bitter cold in many parts of ukraine but at least in a sense to to buy time so that again the ukrainian military which has been so brave and so fearsome really on the battlefield uh you you know you would hate for something on the civilian side to be the difference between whether on the military side they were able to prevail. But if the lights were to go out on the state, if pensioners weren't get weren't to get paid, if health services were to shut down, and those are all things that USAID is is helping support, again, thanks to bipartisan support from Congress, you know, that would really undermine the war effort as a whole. So while the the latest military system, you know, gets the headlines, how medical institutions in Ukraine continue to function for civilians how people manage not to freeze to death.
1: That's all in the purview of USAID. USAID, yes. You've been a war correspondent. You've won a Pulitzer Prize. Not not nothing. And you've had, you know, all of these government jobs. I'm curious, like, how that informs, you know, you were in Bosnia, right? Which was, like, one of the worst wars of our lifetime. I mean... Just can you explain a little bit now you are running an organization that serves the people that you couldn't serve when you were reporting on Bosnia? I mean, how does that inform
4: yeah no it's a, it's a great question. I'd say a couple of things. I mean, first, just on the specifics of having covered Bosnia as a war correspondent and now seeing Ukraine, it's chillingly familiar in many respects, you know, the use of sexual violence as a seemingly willful tactic of war. There's a fair amount of evidence just in the sense that everywhere Russian forces have occupied, you see women who have been subjected to gang rape and and imprisoned and, and again, having had sexual torture inflicted upon them. And then the mass graves, of course, emerging for every uh, territory that Ukraine takes back. That's a lot like what was happening in the former Yugoslavia. And recall, that was an anomaly at the time where it felt like an anomaly and that the Cold War had ended, people were feeling very hopeful, the Soviet Union had collapsed, it looked like democracy was on the march. Now, I think what is so grim about today's war in Ukraine is it it is a superpower bringing those same tactics, that same effort to strip a people of their identity of their dignity and and again to just inflict horrific suffering with the population size of the Russian Federation with the military stockpiles of the Russian Federation you know not not just some small makeshift bosnian serb army you know back in the day and so when you combine even if they're the russians are performing very badly and and obviously didn't think this through or or, or plan properly nonetheless, they have a lot of firepower to bring to bear on behalf of the war crimes that they appear to be committing uh, in right. the areas that they operate. So it's it's kind of, it takes what I experienced up close in a small scale. I mean, it was a big scale for anybody who was suffering uh, at, at the time, but it just puts it on steroids almost. And, and right. that's what's chilling. I will say, I, I do take some solace from my experience in that when I was a war correspondent and so many of our Yours and my colleagues who are still, you know, around and writing, you know, had that seminal experience as well, because it was really where a lot of journalists kind of cut their teeth at that time in the 90s. But we would never have guessed that these warlords and political leaders who were inflicting such pain on civilians that they ever would have been held accountable. It would have been it would have been like saying, you know, my next job was going to be to be an astronaut. (laughs) Like it was so It would have been so crazy. They were so Filled with arrogance and confidence, and it's not to say that there are inevitable parallels between what's happening in Ukraine and what happened in Bosnia. But it is to say you just don't know, and so there's a lot of skepticism. Oh, okay, USAID, you're helping document all these war crimes. We've helped document more than thirty thousand war crimes, alleged war crimes so far in Ukraine. But people say, oh, yeah, but look at Putin. You know, he's there at his long table. And how is that ever going to change? And people are afraid of him. And it's not to say, again, that anybody can predict precisely what's going to happen.
1: Right. But you have this reference point of Bosnia.
4: Yeah, it's contingent, you know, and, and all you can, you, you know, like I always say to my kids, control what you can control. <laughs> all we can control at this point, as it relates on on that matter, is to document, to take depositions, you know to establish courtroom ready uh, stockpiles of evidence and it, it could be anything from a Russian who travels and then and that has happened you know uh, and, and travels and then gets extradited to Ukraine or it could be that the International Criminal Court ends up taking up a case because they've opened an investigation we are building this evidence at the Human Rights Council so again the point is simply we know from history that life is long, right. and unfortunately for the people being having these war crimes inflicted, the pain is now, but we do have a responsibility to build that record, and and history may turn. And just to, to close the loop on Bosnia, of course, these names are now, you know, a little bit, no, nobody's talking about these people anymore, but Ratko Mladic, Slobodan Milosevic, Radovan Karadzic, they just, you know, they were strutting around, and, and they all ended up behind bars
1: yeah it strikes me that there are like a number of issues with what's happening in ukraine and china's relationship with russia and how you guys navigate that
4: you know it is very very challenging china is a permanent member of the security council as is the united states as is russia we would expect that the people's republic of china which has long Stress the importance of sovereignty, right, as a way of keeping countries from looking into human rights conditions inside the PRC. Uh, Chinese diplomats have always talked about sovereignty and it's every state's right to do what it wants within its borders and territorial integrity and all the like. We would have expected a country that for so many years, I shouldn't say we would have expected, we would have hoped that a country that over so many years had made so much of sovereignty and territorial integrity would leap to publicly and plainly make clear that what the Russian Federation is doing, namely trying to erase a U.N. member state, is not only antithetical to the U.N. charter and to all international humanitarian law in terms of the way they're prosecuting that war, but completely antithetical to what the Chinese leadership have been saying for decades, that, you know, what has been the core of the foreign policy message from Beijing. That has not happened. Obviously, the growing relationship prior to this war between President Putin and President Xi, their shared interest in not having human rights norms, wanting human rights norms to be weakened, hoping that they would not have traction, wanting to be able to lock up who they want within their own borders or do what they want, to ethnic minorities within their borders. So they they have a lot of shared interests of that nature in terms of what they want the international rules of the road to be. And as a result, I think you see Beijing, again, acting and talking inconsistently in many respects from their previous positions. Now, that said, Molly, you know, what's noteworthy is notwithstanding the closeness of that personal relationship between the two leaders. I think they referred prior to the wars, this being a relationship without limits. That was the language. And yet the PRC is not standing with Russia either. So they are notably abstaining and in a sense, trying to stay, you know, trying to still sort of say that they're very much in favor of sovereignty and territorial integrity. And yet also now having just put forward a peace plan. I think we are, you and I are talking during a week where we in the United States and and our allies have expressed concern that the PRC may take decisions now that would put them more squarely on on Russia's side in waging this war of aggression. Namely, if they were to provide lethal assistance, that would be moving the PRC into a much more frontally aligned position uh, with Moscow. We have seen no indication, to be clear, that they have yet made this decision. You've seen a lot of U.S. diplomacy and. Public statements to just underscore what a terrible mistake that would be. So Beijing again appears not to have taken off the table, but we haven't yet seen an indication that they're going to move forward. And that's good news. It would be better news if it was off the table entirely because it would be such right, a, right. such a mistake. But certainly, we think it's very important for the war to end, which is what Chinese officials do say they want. For the costs of Russia's actions to be borne by Russian officials by the Russian government because the way wars end is when the costs outweigh the the perceived benefits right. for, for going on. So so it would not be good for the cause of peace if you know China were to get involved on the lethal side. It would be very inconsistent with the peace plan that that the PRC has just put forward. Right. and I think an important point is that in the long term. The PRC is, you know, wants to be a world leader, you know, wants very much to increase its standing in the global south. Those are the markets for Chinese goods, you know, that have really helped fuel Chinese economic development, which has been so explosive prior to the pandemic and and has lifted so many Chinese citizens out of poverty. I mean, they they are playing this longer game, you know, with an eye through the Belt and Road Initiative and their building and their development assistance and their very substantial loans, which unfortunately carry very high interest rates in developing <laughs> countries. But nonetheless, right. they are you know doing all of this. Well, again, more than 140 countries within the UN have condemned Russia. For Beijing to throw its lot in with Russia in this war, I think would be very counterproductive in light of the, those larger ambitions.
1: So I want to ask you about the earthquake and Erdogan in Turkey I'm thinking about there's been this rise in these authoritarian states and Turkey now has this earthquake
4: I mean first of all it's just a searing event in the lives of you know easily I mean well over a million a million people in Syria and I think if you take Turkey and Syria together it's more than 10 million people likely affected about 3 million people have lost their homes and are imagine again it's still winter it's extremely difficult we saw the as we attempted to support the rescue with our search and rescue teams just the dead of winter and the the snow and the the frigid conditions making that even more challenging than it always is you know our objective is to come in behind national authorities when they have the capacity to respond and certainly that was true in turkey as they're in a sense civil protection FEMA equivalent did a very good job that the scope and the scale of what they were up against was, whoa, (laughs) you know, just not something that any any agency could have prepared for. I think Syria, Syria is worse off, right? It's just so much more challenging because you have. The regime, of course, which had gassed its people and inflicted on its people the equivalent of daily earthquakes by pulverizing civilian centers and and apartment buildings and medical facilities uh, throughout that war. Continuously for years and years and years. Yeah, continuously. And so creating scenes just like that. but. You know, if there had been a respite in a community and somebody might have been displaced two, three, four times from different places that Assad had terrorized, maybe they finally had an apartment. And then if they were in Idlib or Aleppo, maybe that apartment uh, in all likelihood, you know, has either been damaged or destroyed in this earthquake. So it's just compounding crisis after compounding crisis. We don't work, of course, with the Syrian government. They're isolated. They're sanctioned. We are continue to hold them accountable for the atrocities in these ways. The epicenter of harm occurred actually in opposition-controlled areas, because there are still parts of Syria that are controlled by opposition elements. The challenge there is extremist groups, of course, have been present in many of those areas. And there are a lot of restrictions or safeguards that we have to have in place so that our resources are not going to an ISIS affiliate or to an Al-Qaeda affiliate. It's hard to find, quote unquote, good guy. Well, No, there are, there are plenty of good guys. Are, right. and to, to be clear, there are plenty of um, like the White Helmets famously are there digging people out of the rubble with with the most rudimentary support from much of the outside world. But you just always know that these extremists lurk and can take advantage of these circumstances, so you just have to be careful. So I think all of that to say the response was much, much slower. The international response, there wasn't that same national infrastructure because Assad, again, is not present in the worst affected areas. That scale-up is happening. The United States have announced $185 million worth of assistance so far. Most of our assistance that flows from this point is likely to go to Syria to try to compensate, again, for the much more rudimentary infrastructure there. But it is going to be a dark and long road to recovery, just again because of the pre-existing conditions in the communities that have been afflicted.
1: Yeah. Oh, no, I'm sure. Do you think that sort of Turkey might have a moment of being able to sort of dislodge Erdogan?
4: Well, I mean, they have their democratic elections are coming up here and I think it's unclear, you know, how the earthquake is going to affect either the conditions. I mean, a lot of people are worried about where they're going to sleep the next night. And so whether they're also you know, thinking about voting or not, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not close enough to it. But also, in general, when emergencies hit, it's very unpredictable kind of what the effect of an emergency or the response to the emergency or or questions about decisions made prior to the emergency, how all of that comes together to inform uh, voter opinion. So I, again, I, I wouldn't comment on that. But the UN has issued a $400 million appeal for Syria. But you know, that's just several months worth of Resources would be need to needed to to just even provide temporary shelter. The Turkish appeal is a billion dollars, and not to have every aspect of our conversation be depressing and and dark, but it is. This earthquake just lands at a time when you have almost a billion people, you know, facing very severe food insecurity and where the knock on effects of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, because Ukraine was the breadbasket of the world, 40 percent of the world food programs, food comes from Ukraine. Jesus. And so, you know, for Putin to invade, take out so many of the major ports you know, block or, you know, reduce to a trickle the export of, of grain from the world's breadbasket, put unexploded ordinances and landmines all over land, even that his forces were vacating. I mean, it is it is just such a horrible, gratuitous, compounding factor. And it was bad enough, you know, before the earthquake, and then the earthquake hit, and suddenly there's more than 10 million people who are in, in need of some form of of assistance between Turkey and Syria. So, So it's a very difficult time, you know, ever more scarce resources and ever more demands on those resources. So if your listeners are inclined to want to help with any of these emergencies, uh, we have at USAID on our website just a list of organizations that are vetted and and are great partners of ours. So it's CIDI.org, CIDI.org. And whether the earthquake or the war in Ukraine, there are lots of ways uh, to contribute.
1: Thank you, Samantha Power. Thank you,
4: Molly. And now your moment
2: of fuckery. Molly Junk Fest.
1: Jesse Cannon.
2: You know, one of my least favorite things is that these Daily Wire nerds, they represent nobody. No one believes things they believe, but they get a huge, huge platform through these bots.
1: They do really well on Facebook.
2: <laughs> they do really well on Facebook because they buy a lot of Facebook ads and they've had a lot of audience. They botted their podcasts, as we've seen people prove. And now they get to talk at CPAC. And what happens?
1: Why don't we bot our... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Wait, wait, wait. wait.
2: That's a great idea. uh, Yes,
1: let's bot our podcast. Michael Knowles, host of the Michael Knowles Show. Again, who the fuck is that? Of the Daily Wire. So, like, think of Ben Shapiro, but lesser. A lesser Ben Shapiro, if that's even possible, gave a speech at CPAC, which at moments sounded, as you might say, genocidal. And here's the direct quote. The problem with transgenderism is not that it's inappropriate for children under the age of nine. He said the problem is that it isn't true. And then he went on to sort of imply that transgender people should not exist. He got a lot of publicity off of that line and people saying that he was saying that transgender people shouldn't exist. And he got furious because he said he wasn't saying that and decided he would sue all these outlets. But of course, he was saying that. And again, this dance is the way in which people on the far right try to use the media to gin up engagement and raise money. And for that, he gets a hearty moment of fuckery. Michael Knowles, the lesser Ben Shapiro, who is the lesser Tucker Carlson. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening.